Our first reading this morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. One more passage this morning, first chapter of Philippians, Philippians 1, 21 through 24. And I don't know, I think I might, the uh, secretary here might have made a mistake. The actual title of the sermon is Contemplating Life and Death. I don't know if I'm, I might have put that in there wrong. But the sermon title is Contemplating Life and Death from Philippians 1, 21 through verse 24. Paul writes, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we've been in Philippians 1, 12 through 18, and we have looked at the Apostle Paul. We have looked at his explanation for his chains. He is imprisoned. We know that he's between two Roman guards, the elite of the elite. There's like 9,000 of them, and these are the elite guards, and he's chained there, and he's talking about the advancement of the kingdom of God in the prison and outside the prison. And he's rejoicing over its advancement. He awaits the verdict of the hands of the emperor. He is absolutely certain of certain things. He is guaranteed. He knows that he will not be disappointed. As he stands up for Christ, he will not be ashamed. And he is certain that Christ will be exalted in his body, whether he receives a verdict of life or the verdict of death. But now we come to these verses in verses 21 through 24, and he begins to, to contemplate life and death. And so he's thinking like this, how will my death benefit me and how will my death impact the church? How will my living impact me and how will my living impact those, the, the church? And so he contemplates, the first point this morning is contemplating life and death. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now let's think about gain for just a second. If you look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, this is where we begin to understand what Paul thinks about gain. Before he was apprehended in Acts chapter 9 by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, we're going to look at what he thought of as his gain. He put all his confidence in certain things. Verse 4, although I myself might have 
confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel. So he is putting all his confidence in his personal advantages. He has been circumcised. He has the sign and seal of the covenant of the people of the nation of God. Now, this is a special nation. They weren't chosen because they're so big, they're so powerful, because God loved them. And he gave them his law. He gave them the Psalms. He gave them the prophets, the oracles of God. So he's very confident in this circumcision and in the fact that he's part of this nation. And he goes on, he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. And if you know anything about Benjamin, we're studying about those. One of, one of, the, one, one of the kids in California called their son Benger, Benjamin. I think they couldn't pronounce his name. But those Benjamites, they're scrappy folks, right? They're scrappy guys. Go look at Saul and go look at those Benjamin, Benjamites. They're, they're, and this is Saul. Saul is a Benjamite. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. And, and then he begins to go from his advantages of being circumcised and of the nation of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin, and a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says, I ask to the law, I'm a Pharisee. This is his accomplishment. Listen, there were only 6,000 of these guys. I'm going to make a case. Maybe he was number two. I don't know. You know, maybe Nicodemus was number three and Gamaliel was number one. But he says he was advancing among all his contemporaries. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's proud of that. As to zeal as a Pharisee, he's a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is by the law, he is absolutely blameless. These are the things that he calls gain. And what is it? Today, everybody says, these are the talking points. You know, I'm so tired of watching TV because everything is, these are the talking points. I mean, they're all, they all have the same ones. I'm tired of just listening to my Bible now on my, my phone. But this is what he's putting all his confidence in, and then all of a sudden things go on total reverse on him. He finds out that these accomplishments and these advantages, they cannot save him. He needs a righteousness that's beyond what he can produce. He needs a righteousness that only Jesus can be found in Jesus Christ. And so he finds himself on the wrong side of Christ. He puts him, his trust in Jesus, all his confidence in Jesus, and everything that was gained to him is now, the Greek says skubalon, it means dung. All these advantages, all these accomplishments, well, some of those things are good in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong with that. But to put your confidence in those things as the sal- for, for your salvation, that's what's wrong with that. And so now he puts his confidence in Jesus Christ. Everything is reversed. And he's seeking to forget what lies behind. And he's pressing forward to gain, to gain, priority number one, to gain Jesus Christ. So he's contemplating life. And he's contemplating death. He says to die is gain. For me, for to me, to die is gain. So life for the Apostle Paul is faith in Jesus Christ and gaining him by faith. And death is gaining Jesus Christ by what? Sight. Ultimate gain. Life is faith in Jesus Christ, walking with Jesus Christ. Death is Jesus Christ by sight. Think about it. Death is living in his presence, no sin, no more turmoil, no more difficulties, um, no more AC going out at night like it did last night at my house. Uh, Perfect bliss. 
So now we come to, here he is contemplating life, contemplating death, and we come to a point of holy indecision. Look at verse 22. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. There's his indecision. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, very much better. So what am I to do? This is like a man walking down a narrow way, and on one side there's a wall of rocks, and on another side there's a wall of rocks, and he doesn't know what to do. He's hemmed in. Now, we've talked about this, and we get to talk about it later too, but I'll just tell you that in Philippians three twelve through 14 he talks about holy discontentment. You know, I think it was Bridges. There's a book I read years ago, Bridges. He talks about here's where you find yourself you're at on the, on the graph, and this is where God wants you to be. And this d- difference between this line on the graph and this line on the graph makes you unhappy. <laughs> and somebody would say, well, it's, it's not right to be discontent. I go, well, it's, it's okay to be holy discontent. It's holy discontentment. I'm pressing forward. I want to get to this part of the line. I want to move from here to here on the graph. And that's where we were going to look at that in uh, Philippians three twelve through 14. But here we have holy indecision. I don't know if I... I can't remember if I got this out of a commentary or not. But this is acceptable waffling. This is acceptable waffling. What's he waffling between? He's waffling between gain, living life by faith, or living in the very presence, ultimate gain, Jesus Christ and his face. What do you choose? Holy Mr. Facing Both Ways. Now, Mr. Facing Both Ways in Pilgrim's Progress, he's facing the world and he's facing Jesus Christ. And so he's in, that's, that's unholy waffling. But this is a holy Mr. Facing Both Ways. What do I choose? One is far better. One is benefits the church. What do I choose? Well, if you ask him, this is point number two. He prefers, if you ask him what he prefers... He prefers death. Look at verse 23. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. That's what he prefers. What do you prefer, Paul? I prefer to go and be right in Jesus' face. So here we see the nature of Christian's Christian's death. And it's to depart. It's to depart. He opts to depart. Departure, there's, there's like several ideas of departure. There's this departure that takes place between a servant who's worked for a master and he departs and he goes to live a new kind of life. There's a departure where the, the ship is uh, wake up in the morning, everybody, they weigh the anchor and they depart and they go to another place and they drop the anchor. That's departure and then arrival and dropping the anchor. There's another thing, the Apostle Paul, he knows all about this. He breaks camp in the morning and he departs and he makes camp in the evening. This is what people did in those days. And so he knows all about what it means to depart. And he's saying that the nature of the Christian's death is to depart. To depart from this life and into the next. To depart from this camp and go camp there, make camp forever in heaven. Let's think about the blessedness of the Christian's death. It's to be with Christ, to depart and be with Christ. Years ago, I uh, did a funeral for a lady, and I preached the words, Today, you shall be with me in paradise. And I was telling her husband, Today, 
your wife is with Jesus in paradise. And so we talked about the context. And we said there's those two thieves and they're hurling abuse at Jesus while they're on their own crosses. And then all of a sudden, one of them, Holy Spirit must, we, we sang that song. The Holy Spirit does what? He, he opens up people's hearts. And all of a sudden, he begins to condemn himself. And he tells his, his, tells his friend, he says, you and I are here for our own sins. This man hasn't done anything wrong. And he begins to admit that he's a sinner. And then he looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be, here's two things, with me in paradise. It isn't paradise unless it's with him. With me in paradise. This is the final camp that we make. This is the final time that we drop anchor. We're with Jesus in paradise. Now, I, I hope this illustration works, but I, I, I'm going to admit to you that uh, my kids, they know Jane Austen better than me. And um, they, they, they've all read all the books, but they have coached me. And I've watched all the movies many, many times. And so Emma Woodhouse, she finds herself, she realizes she's in love with Mr. Knightley. And she goes over to Mr. Woodhouse, her dad, and he's an interesting character in the show. And she says, you know, Dad, when we get married, we're going to move into Mr. Knightley's house. And Mr. Woodhouse goes, oh, no, 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 no. No, we want everything to stay just as it always has been. We want Mr. Knightley to walk over to the house. We want him to stay in the house with us all day. And then we want him to depart and go over back to his house at night. We don't want you to move in with him. And so Mr. Knightley, you know, thinks about it. He tells Emma, said, well, let me just move in with you, you guys. You see, the point was we want to move in together so there's no more separation. We want to move in together to make a home. That's what marriage is, to make a new home. And we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, and I'm going to change the word that I usually would say because it can be translated this way. Death is to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. It's to make a new home. So we leave this place, we go to that place, and we're at home with the Lord. Let's think also about the superiority of the Christian's death, for that is very much better. <laughs> it's better. Now, have you ever heard this? I want you to write this down. I've somebody, I think Ligon Duncan said this years ago, and I've never forgotten. He says, this is as bad as it will ever get on the earth for you. Now, it gets bad. Um... In California, we saw gas up to four fifties and four sixties. Now it's in the way up there. It's going to get. It's got. It's got crazy around here, right? It's bad. We hurt. We deal with sin. It's bad. It can get worse. This is as bad as it'll ever be on there for us as Christians, because we have one thing to look forward to, and that's very, very much better. One commentator said this: in, "This is an infinite superlative. Nothing better." It's going to be infinite improvement. I don't even, how do we, how does that register? Infinite improvement? For finite being? I don't even understand it. But that's what we see. So let me answer some questions. What is to be our view of a loved one when they die? So if Paul dies, and he goes to the very much better, and you run around Philippian church, if you run around saying, poor Paul, he'll say, shame on you. <laughs> right? Because it's very much better. I'm with Jesus. I'm in paradise. Don't say poor Mary Ellen, but say perfect gain. That's how we should look at our loved ones 
when they die. You and I, we are the ones to be pitied because we're still on the earth and we're still the church militant. We're still the ones who are joining together to walk and fight uh, and live for Christ. Well, what is, to be our, what is to be our view of death as a Christian? Confidence and tears. I'm confident. You and I, we're to be confident that when we die, we are going to be with Jesus at home very much better. But what is to be our view of death when it comes to the tear part? Why would we have tears? Well, even though this is difficult, this life is difficult. And even though we would all say we have our miseries and our pains, have you not experienced some great joys? I mean, have you not? I, I love to think about David. David has been in a cave with men on his side, and they've been going after the, the, the God and God's will. Have you not been in caves with people? Have you not been in prayer with people? Have you not done some amazing things with people? With being in love with a woman, being in love with a man, building a family around the Word of God. These are some wonderful things. And leaving these sorts of things will bring tears. So as we think about our view of death as a Christian, we see confidence and we see tears. But what is to be the view of our view of death if we're not a Christian. It's to be our view of death if we're not a Christian. Our, our text is all about Christians. For to me, to, die, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's all about Christians. Well, there's nothing said here about what the Bible has in view when it comes to a non-Christian. But the Bible is very clear on what it does teach about being a non-believer. The Bible tells us there's two destinations. There's heaven and there's hell. I remember when I was in my 20s, for the first time I was really studying the Bible, and all of a sudden I realized Jesus talks more about hell than he does about heaven. Really, he, he does. An unbeliever who does not come to Jesus Christ, an unbeliever who does not walk on the narrow way and into eternal life is on a way, he's on a path. It's just not the path to life. He's going through a, a gate this wide. He's going walking down a wide path, and it will end one day. He will step off, and there will be no more steps to take. He will fall into a place of constant eternal punishment. And that's what hell is. Hell is a, not paradise. It's not heaven. It's a place. It's real, and it's constant eternal punishment. I won't go into all the things, but when Jesus talks about hell, he says that it's like Gehenna. It's, a, it's like a dump. And the dump back in those days was a place where fires were burning all the time. It was a place where the worms were working in animals and dead men's bodies all the time. You can go to Luke chapter 16 and you can see the rich man. He's separated from Abraham's bosom. And he wants just one drip of water from Lazarus as he asks Abraham to send him over just to alleviate him of his misery. It's constant eternal punishment. And Jesus teaches us this is a place of constant eternal punishment for those who will not look to him for their salvation from their sin. Entering through a wide gate, walking down the broad way leading to destruction. The other day I was talking to my daughter and we were, you know, we're out walking around in Brenham. And um, I said, Ask her about her friend. And I said, um, what's she doing? She said, well, she's living with somebody. I said, oh, okay. And she's living with somebody, and they're living with another couple in the same 
apartment. And I'm going, oh, that's just strange. And she wasn't brought up like that. And she's been baptized. And she's been a professor of faith in Jesus Christ. And she wasn't trained by mom and dad this way. And she knows what you think about all of this. I said, what is going on in her mind? And every time I said something, she wouldn't say anything. She just stayed there. Just totally mom's the word. And then she finally said this, Dad, I don't think she thinks about it at all. No thinking. Moment by moment, no thinking. Well, what? There's something going on. There's living paycheck to paycheck. They're going from one, one thing to the next like everybody else. One pleasure to the next. One job to the next. Totally unconscious of their sins. And God is completely choked out of the mind. And I was reading the other day, and this is... Uh, some some information that I was just gleaning from Machen who wrote this in back, back in 1925. What is it that would wake a person up from this, from this no thinking, this gulf that exists between God and this person? What, what will wake them up? And it's the law of God has to be preached from the pulpit. The minister has to do his duty. Now y'all get ready because your turn, your spot's coming. But the minister must tell the people God requires worship of him alone. He forbids all idols, all heart idols, all visible idols. He requires that we reverence him, not take his name in vain. He requires that we worship him on his day. Submitting to his authority in all things. No disobedience to parents. He forbids us from angry passions. Think about your angry passions, not your friend's angry passions. Think about you right now, just about you. He forbids all murderous thoughts. He forbids all immoral thinking and actions. He forbids all stealing. He forbids all lying. We live in a day of nothing but, but just slander. I cannot believe watching TV. Are we being infected by that? Property? Are you taking care of other people's property or stealing? Am I content or am I covetous? Now here it is. This is what the preacher is supposed to do. Preach the law, but listen to this. What will make a person like this see their sin? And this is what McLaren writes. The law of God must be proclaimed in the, li in the lives of Christian people as well as in the word. Whoa, here we go. It is quite useless for the preacher to breathe out fire and brimstone from the pulpit if at the same time the occupants of the pews go on taking sin very lightly and being content with the moral standards of the world. The rank and file of the church must do their part in so proclaiming the law of God by their lives. Here it is, listen carefully, that the secrets of men's hearts shall be revealed. Did you know that your godly life will reveal the secret sins in people's hearts? Well, finally, he says this. This great gulf can only be changed from a life with God if the power of the Holy Spirit convicts them of their sin. So here's this preaching in word, and here's this preaching in deed, but the Holy Spirit has to accompany it into the person's heart so that they might wake up from their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, we studied this, and guys, I'm going to, y'all forgive me, I'm going to give y'all a little rehearsal of something we talked about, the Apostle Paul. We, we talked about 
Uh, Paul here, he is the author of our epistle. He's so strict. He's so full of his advantages. He's so full of his accomplishments. He's the best of the best. There's nobody like this man on the face of the earth. Maybe one guy above him, right? We said he was number two. So here he is. He's the best of the best. And he's going out and he's doing like this girl. He's just doing what everybody does. He's going against Christ. He thinks Christ is wrong. He's got to get rid of that name. He's got to get rid of Christ, his name. And so he's out there doing what everybody else is doing. He's opposing Jesus. And then he runs into Stephen. Listen, listen. Saul understood the Ten Commandments as good as anybody in the world. <laughs> just hadn't affected him. And then he ran into Stephen. And I'm just going to argue the fact that I think when he ran into Stephen, he ran into somebody so superior to him, it dwarfed him. And he's coveted. He started going, I'm, I can't even cope with this guy. I can't cope with this guy's wisdom. I can't cope with this guy's spirit. I can't go cope with the power in his arguments. And so what do you do when you can't cope? You stone him to death. Get rid of him. And then he just keeps on being pricked. He's coveting the Bible. He says in Romans 7, I'm going to assume that his covetousness is he coveted Stephen and he saw sin for the first time and he died. How did he come to know this? Only because the Spirit of God opened up his eyes. Have you seen your sin so that you would need a Savior? That's the key. Has God opened up your eyes so that you can walk through that small gate, walk on that narrow way that leads to a place that's not constant eternal punishment, but constant eternal life? Oh, oh, this is the thing. The wages of sin, Paul writes later, is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, let's go on. Another question. We need to think, what is it to be, what is to be our view of ourselves when a loved one departs in death? And I'm going to give you two answers, mourning and, and rejoicing. We have to hold them both together, don't we? In this, this is rough. This is rough in this life. We mourn. Uh, mourning is not out of place. And I, I very much want to keep doing the nine lessons and carols of Christmas um, this, this December. Ben, I want to do that. <laughs> but in 1918, the special Christmas service was written, and it was performed at the King's College, Cambridge. And that during this time, there's a long, it's a wonderful liturgy. And during this time, there's a prayer, and, and they say these words in the prayer. And because of because this, of all things, would rejoice our Lord's heart, let us remember in His name the poor and helpless, the cold, the hungry, and the oppressed, the sick and them that mourn. So here we are at Christmas time, and we're supposed to be rejoicing that Jesus comes, and we rejoice at the fact that He's born in human flesh, and they think about those who mourn. We mourn. And we think about it at Christmas time, probably like no other time. So we mourn. And so I remember in 2007, I buried my father. And in 2007, in December, there was an empty spot at the table. That big old guy that made our hamburgers, that loved the fire out of us, that was tender and quiet, that took everybody fishing if they wanted to go, that took everybody out to eat, that read his Bible and went to church on a regular basis and spanked one young man rear end and took him back. I still this is this is a, this is the guy. He's not there. The smile, the laugh, all these things, not there. And so we mourn. 
But Jesus, he mourns with us. Jesus comes as a child and he lives and he lives his whole life and he mourns with us. He conquers death. I love that statement. John Owen writes, the death of death and the death of Christ. In his death, he kills death. Now, I want you to think about something with me before we move on to the, to the worship part and the rejoicing part. In John chapter 11, Jesus gets ready and um, he kind of waits. He doesn't go to Lazarus when he's sick. For four days, he waits. He gets there. He's been in the tomb for four days. We can talk about all the reasons why. And so he walks up. Here's little David. He walks up to this tomb, Goliath. Nobody's ever defeated death ever, ever. And Jesus prays. Jesus takes out a stone, puts it in his sling, and says, Lazarus, come forth. Conquers death, and Lazarus comes forth. But you know what's most significant about the story? He knows he's going to do this. The most significant thing about the story is he goes and he cries with Mary and Martha. That's what's significant. So here we are. Morning's not out of place. Don't let anybody tell you morning's out of place. I've had, I've had people when I used to train. I had a lady who said she buried her husband a week earlier. And she said, I just can't understand why she's just not bouncing back. This is a 40-year-old woman with kids. I can't understand why my friend's not bouncing back. She just ought to be back in the gym. Morning's not out of place. Okay. Jesus mourns with us. But we also rejoice. In this service, the Nine Lessons and Carol service, at the very end, they read this. Lastly, let us remember before God all those who rejoice with us. Who rejoice with us? Who are we talking about? Those upon another shore. <laughs> and in greater light, that multitude which no man can number, whose hope was in the Word made flesh, and with whom in the Lord Jesus we are forever one. So think about it right now. They are rejoicing on the other shore. We are rejoicing and worshiping on this shore, but we are forever one in Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful picture. I buried a seven-year-old boy, and I preached a sermon on David burying his child. And he mourned, and he got up from mourning, and he washed himself off. He didn't eat first. He went and he worshipped. Mourning and worship. This is what we do when loved ones depart from our midst. One room may be empty of a chair, but heaven is fuller by one. Well, finally, the apostle out of necessity, what does he choose? He chooses life. He chooses life. Look at verse 24. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for you, for your sake. So the nature of the Christian life is to remain. The nature of the Christian life is to remain. And what's the nature of the Christian life to remain to do or for? He says the blessedness of the Christian's life is this, for your sake. He's not thinking about himself. He's not thinking about his own interests and his own needs. He's thinking about the other people out there. He's thinking about those who need him. He's thinking about those who need to be loved and ministered to by him. He puts his desire to be with Christ, which is far better, to the side. In verse 25, he goes on to say, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain 
and I will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. What for the ultimate thing? For them, he says this in verse 22, it will mean fruitful labor for me. So we have the nature of the Christian life is to remain. The blessedness of the Christian life is for your sake. We have the fruitfulness of the Christian life is for the benefit or labor or for others. He's thinking about dying. He knows it's far better. But for you, for the church, for the Philippians, it's for him to remain and to not be lazy but to do his duty. The nature of the Christian life is to remain Think about 1 John 3, 2. The Apostle John contemplates the coming of Jesus. He says, we will be like him, and we will be with him. And then he says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him, sit around and do nothing. No, he says he purifies himself just as he is pure. He goes right back to holiness. I'm going to be like him. I'm going to see him just as he is. But right now I will purify myself even as he is pure. In 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle speaks of death. He talks about the the people who have perished, putting on the imperishable. He talks about those who are alive and remain. Those are the mortals. They put on immortality. He talks about the coming of Jesus Christ. And then he says these words, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. I think one commentator said this, back to work. (laughs) Right? (laughs) What are you going to do? Back to work. Everything we do, not not any of it's in vain. Everything we do, Jesus Christ is in view. In fact, everything we do, far better is in our view. So, back to work. If you're here... And you're remaining, and I see all of you are. I see your eyes. I see you. I see that hand. I see those eyes. Okay, so you're here for the sake of others to be fruitful and serve each other. So back to work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you. We thank you for speaking to us through your scriptures. And we pray, Father, that these things would be on our hearts and our minds. We would receive them with love, take them home with faith in our hearts, and seek to let these words guide every thought that we have. Lord, help us as we remain, all of us here, to remain and to serve one another, to give up our time and our energies for your glory, for the will of God, and for the good of others. We'll praise you for it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.